So what I did was uh, I proposed this project that we should build a, a computer that could create flavorful and novel culinary recipes. The Cultured Meat Symposium 2023 is taking place on November 2nd and 3rd, 2023 in Las Vegas. Join us as we discuss topics of product development and manufacturing of cell-cultivated meat, poultry, and seafood technology. This year, we're doing things a little bit differently, waiving attendee fees and distributing tickets on an application basis. You heard that right. Pre-register for the event to get the latest updates on how you can secure your ticket. Learn more about the event and pre-register at www.cms23.com. Love Varshney is an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering, computer science, neuroscience, and industrial engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is also chief scientist of Vinceris Inc. On leave, he is currently a principal research scientist at Salesforce Research in Palo Alto, California, focusing on AI ethics and AI for social good. He received his BS degree from Cornell University in 2004. He received his SM, EE, and PhD degrees from MIT in 2006, 2008, and 2010. He was a research staff member at the IBM Thomas J. Watson Research Center from 2010 until 2013, where he led the design and development of the Chef Watson Computational Creative System. Dr. Varshney serves on the advisory board for AI XPRIZE. He received the IBM Faculty Award in 2014 and was a finalist for the Bell Labs Prize in 2014 and 2016. Love, I'd like to welcome you to the Future Food Show. Thanks, Alex, for having me. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be on, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about the future of food. Let's start with your background. Uh, what did you study, and what was the focus of your PhD? Yeah, so all of my degrees are in electrical engineering. Um, my doctoral work at MIT was focused on information theory, and in particular, um, trying to understand the limits of communication systems and decision systems when the receiver has uh, certain limitations, whether it's noisy or resource limited in various ways. And so I was largely proving uh, mathematical theorems um, about uh, such systems. You did work at Cornell and then you went over to MIT, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I went to college at Cornell and then I went to MIT. Um, and then after that, I joined IBM for a few years. And then I've been a professor at the University of Illinois uh, since then. And this year I'm on leave uh, at Salesforce Research out here in Palo Alto. My focus is on the ethics and uh, the, the social good applications of artificial intelligence. So one of the interesting uh, questions in, in, in artificial intelligence uh, these days is the question of fairness. Um, it's one of the key ethical questions um, because um, notions of justice and fairness are embedded in the algorithms and the data that's uh, used to train them. And so, um, yeah, I was at the AI for Good Summit in, in Geneva that the United Nations folks ran a, a couple of months ago. And that was one of the, the interesting focuses, one of the central focuses. Um, in particular, um, certain technologies uh, work better for certain subpopulations. And so that um, seems to be unfair. Uh, for example, face recognition. Um, it seems to work for um, certain subpopulations better than others. And so um, one of the kind of 
questions that uh, people are asking in, in AI ethics is how can we ensure that algorithms are fair um, for, for different people, whether they're recommending them for, um, for jobs or recommending uh, their uh, kind of criminal sentencing or um, doing face recognition, um, a variety of, of tasks like that. Interesting. And that's from a, a, tech, a technical standpoint, right? Like to give the example, let's say facial recognition works better if you are not bald, for example. Is that the type of technical limitation? Yeah, that, that would be a technical limitation. And then there's the social implications that one can think through, as well as um, kind of further societal um, settings in which these kinds of uh, issues might arise. Interesting. Okay. And it makes me think of like a, I, I think you mentioned it, like a recruiting platform. Let's say that the recruiting platform will will recommend certain people, but not if they have X, Y, or Z attributes. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Okay. And so then as someone who is working on ethics, you would have to build into the software to to kind of make that correction. Is that right? Yeah, there's different ways of approaching it. In fact, um, perhaps the best way to do it is since uh, a lot of modern machine learning is based on large training data sets, it's to ensure that the data itself is uh, that you're training on is uh, is fair. Is fair. Interesting. Okay. And and not to jump into this topic too much, but when we're talking about fairness, what kind of what is there is there a way to measure that? Like, is there a metric for fairness? Yeah, in fact, uh, there's been a proliferation of metrics in the academic literature um, to try to mathematize what it means to be fair. Um, there are certain limitations of each of the metrics, and so that's still an open question of how uh, to define it very precisely. In fact, uh, most people believe that it's actually contextual, so the context actually determines uh, the appropriate notion of fairness that one should consider. Interesting. Okay. And I'm sure that makes things a lot more difficult when you're bringing AI and ML into the picture. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the fact that there is this uh, zoo of possibilities of what we mean by fair um, makes it um, kind of more difficult to achieve all of them simultaneously, for sure. Um, but also it raises the natural question, which ones should we pick and, and focus on? I, I want to jump into a question about Chef Watson and your work at IBM. But before that, I want to ask you about the startup scene in Champagne. I saw that on your LinkedIn profile, there was a company that you were involved with, a startup in Champagne that's doing work with AI. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I've been serving as the chief scientist of a startup in Champagne called Ansaris. And Ansaris is focused on using artificial intelligence in the wastewater treatment field, in part dealing with food waste, but, um, but much more generally as well. And so we've been looking at ways of uh, smartly classifying wastewater, whether it needs treatment or not, um, and also looking at questions of optimizing uh, the plant operations using artificial intelligence. Very cool. And is that startup involved with the university? So, for example, are they in like enterprise works or is it separate from the university? Yeah, so um, so the nice thing in Urbana-Champaign is that there's a nice ecosystem um, in Research Park. Yeah, enterprise works is, uh, is a strong supporter of that. And so this past summer, um, we uh, we did have office space in in, in Enterprise Works. Uh, we had some interns from the university uh, working with us. Um, and yeah, it was a nice experience working with them. About a year ago, you told me about the really cool work um, that you did at IBM on the Chef Watson project. So what is Chef Watson? This was back in uh, 2012. Um, I was working at IBM uh, just after my, my doctoral work. 
And we had this charge from the company to come up with something as uh, crazy and uh, compelling as uh, winning Jeopardy. And so uh, I had proposed this idea of extending computing into creativity, which is not usually a field that one thinks about as, uh, as some place where computers could be good, especially back then. Um, these days, I think it's, it's more obvious to people that computers can be creative. Though uh, computational creativity actually goes back to the, the birth of artificial intelligence in 1956. Uh, even um, then at the Dartmouth conference where AI really started, there were discussions of creativity, um, especially because it's thought of as the pinnacle of, of human intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was uh, I proposed this project that we should build a, a computer that could create flavorful and novel culinary recipes. And the reason I chose food as the initial domain for for this creativity investigation was, uh, first of all, um, it's so central to human health and culture. Um, everyone eats, um, I guess, most people eat at least three times a day. I think most people eat a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Food Network is is often more popular than, than ESPN on TV. Uh, secondly, um, it is very central to health, of course. Um, food is very much a central determinant of health. And uh, third, if you're if you were working at a company like I was at the time, the fact that uh, food is, uh, I guess, more than one tenth of the world economy is is a good thing. Uh, if, if you can make even small impacts, um, that can be large from a financial perspective. And so that's um, why I chose food. And then we went ahead and actually built a system. Um, uh, my colleague uh, Florian Pinnell and I we worked um, on developing uh, training data. We developed algorithms for generating new ideas that involve remixing existing recipes, substituting ingredients, uh, sampling from the entire space of what's possible in creativity, and then having a selective algorithm. And that's where a lot of the power of the machine came in, um, because a million ideas is actually not as useful to you as, as the three best ideas. And so we built models to uh, predict uh, human flavor perception. Uh, based on the basic chemistry of uh, food ingredients, as well as uh, results from hedonic psychophysics, which is the branch of psychology concerned with which stimuli people like and dislike. Um, we also built uh, predictors for novelty. Um, so what will people perceive as as novel? Um, so putting all of that together, we built a system that could uh, actually generate uh, flavorful recipes and uh, seems to, to have worked pretty well. Um, since I left IBM, they've uh, put it to, to use in all kinds of settings, whether for the internal research and development activities of uh, large uh, food companies or kind of public-facing events, um, kind of all kinds of settings. Do you have any examples of maybe what kinds of recipes it would put together? Yeah, like one of my favorites um, was a plantain dessert um, with a Caymanian uh, kind of uh, regional cuisine influence. Um, This was a a dessert that my wife and I actually served at our wedding reception. So I had some kind of personal stake in making sure it was good. Um, And it's kind of a banana cream um, layer. It's a layered uh, kind of parfait-like dessert. yeah, it has kind of a, a banana cream layer, um, a papaya with cayenne pepper layer, so it gives you a little bit of space uh, as part of the dessert. Um, it has plantain chips on top, so it has a little crunch. Uh, so it, uh, it's, it's a very nice dessert, and it's also in the, uh, the cookbook that IBM published, uh, the Chef Watson cookbook. Wow, that's really cool. And that does sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> 
when you were developing the, I guess, when you were originally developing the Chef Watson platform, were there any data points related to shopping trends and retail stores? Um, not initially, but um, from what I understand, um, IBM did look at that later on after I left. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. For me personally, um, yeah. Since I've been at Illinois, um, I've been interested in understanding the food pipeline more broadly um, beyond flavor. Um, so we've been working on a project recently on using blockchain for uh, tracking the food supply chain, ensuring that uh, the food supply chain is safe, and localizing contamination events um, using noisy data. Um, so that's something I've been quite interested in, kind of going backwards into. And the food supply chain, and even going backwards into agriculture, um, trying to understand where uh, AI and, and data techniques can be useful for optimizing uh, agriculture. And then on the kind of post uh, side, as, as I mentioned, I've been working with Ansaris, um for the last few years on understanding wastewater, um, kind of food waste. So um, yeah, kind of the whole uh, food system is something that I've been interested in. And food trends, of course, are, are part of that. We hear a lot about executions of blockchain for tracking food. Is there anything out there that's currently in place that that is working on an industrial scale that you might know of? Yeah, there's a consortium that's led by Walmart and IBM, um, and they're uh, if they if it's not deployed, they're pretty close to deployment. Um, and because these are these are such large players in 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 the space, uh, they can influence uh, others to adopt as well. Um, and so the basic thinking is that every time food moves, um, that there would be a transaction placed on a, on a blockchain. Um, so whenever you pick a box of apples from, from an orchard, you put that on a blockchain and it goes on a truck and that transaction goes on a blockchain um, and it goes to a, a, a distribution center, to a retail center, to, to the customer. All of those things um, end up as transactions on a blockchain. And so then there's a very good traceability. Um, and then if there are, uh, say, um, food contamination events or, or other things, you can trace them back and, and infer where, where it was. These days, recalling all the lettuce in the U.S., you can pinpoint where it came from and have much smaller uh, recall actions. Right. So in addition to knowing where it came from, also, for example, which batch it came from. Yeah, exactly. I was speaking to a founder of a cultured meat company based in Singapore, and she was telling me that in the traditional grocery store in Singapore, all the fruits and vegetables, for example, show you where they originate. And that's something I feel like we don't have too much in the U.S. Like if I pick up a banana, where did that banana come from? Uh, and so maybe in the future, if more, I mean, we were talking about Walmart, for example, if more retailers and companies are using these technologies, that would be a really cool um, data point in the grocery store to see this pineapple well, pineapples I think mostly come from Hawaii but this pineapple <laughs> came from Hawaii or this wherever this banana came from so that that is yeah. really cool yeah in fact um, yeah if you've noticed there are certain fruits now that have QR codes on their packaging and so you can scan those and actually see some of the provenance of, uh, of where they came from um, oh, but I cool. think yeah but I think it will b become more and more prominent as uh, as these things go and one of the other interesting things about this is um, right now we typically abstract uh, kind of food into large categories like uh, grade A eggs. Um, we don't uh, follow so closely uh, um, where, where which specific farm they came from or which specific field they came from. 
And this is a, a bit of a historical remnant from uh, from uh, the grain elevators in Chicago in the 1800s when they established the Board of Trade. It was easier to um, treat uh, commodities as commodities rather than knowing which specific field they came from. It enabled trade and led to the worldwide financial system. But now there's growing interest in kind of knowing where things come from. So that allows farmers to actually create higher value products. Um, they can say that this specific corn or the specific wheat or the specific fruit has certain properties and it should demand a premium in the market. It shouldn't just be lumped together with all the other apples uh, that are in the store. Interesting. And I think a, a, an example that comes to mind is coffee, right? When we think of a coffee bean, if you just buy a generic bag of coffee, it could have beans from a lot of different farms, a lot of different countries. But if you get that specialized coffee that comes from a particular region, or for example, you know that it's a single origin, there's definitely a premium on that. And so, so would you say that that's the kind of thing that you could apply to all types of other foods, especially commodity-based foods? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you could uh, decompose commodities into more specific um, agricultural items, and that would uh, provide them with greater, um, greater value. So do you think that farmers are thinking about things like this right now? I'm thinking about it from a standpoint of, of, of course, the the very large farms, they are not only running their farming operations, but I'm sure that they, they are doing a lot of research into how they could improve and optimize in every single way. Um, but for some of the smaller farmers, do you think that they are thinking about things like this? Um, I think they're starting to. Um, so for sure, in colleges of agriculture, like at the University of Illinois, I have colleagues who are thinking about this. And in fact, um, I'm participating in the Center for Digital Agriculture at the university. Um, it's a new initiative that we just started. And through that research, um, as well as outreach to farmers, I think some of these ideas are definitely spreading. All state universities have a strong uh, outreach program. Um, it's called the uh, Agricultural Extension Program. And so uh, a lot of the ideas that are developed in universities uh, fairly quickly uh, propagate to farmers and, uh, and they, uh, they're usually very interested in, and willing to, to adopt some of the new ideas that come out. Digital agriculture sounds very, very cool <laughs> um, <laughs> as a term. And it, it really shows that we, we really can and actually have to go in, in that direction if we want to optimize and, and really feed more mouths uh, in the future. Um, that program at University of Illinois, you said it was the new program? Yeah, it's uh, officially actually launching um, in October, I think. Um, I think the website is up and uh, it's actually funded directly from, from the university. So it's, uh, it's a university priority. Um, but the hope is to involve a lot of uh, folks from industry and, uh, and elsewhere as well. Now that we're on the topic, what are your thoughts about uh, vertical farming uh, or indoor farming? Yeah, so I find urban aquaponics to be pretty neat. Um, so I, I went to Chicago uh, a couple of years ago and, and saw um, one of these, uh, it's called The Plant um, in Chicago. And yeah, it was, it was really neat. I mean, growing fish and, uh, and um, some root vegetables all in kind of one system. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. I'm not sure how scalable it is, uh, given the limited amounts of space that are available in various places. But, um, yeah, for sure, an idea worth exploring. I'll have to check that out, the plant in Chicago. It sounds uh, sounds pretty cool. 
you've seen plant-based meats and cell-cultured meats in the news and perhaps in the retail stores. What are your thoughts on these products from a personal standpoint? Um, have you purchased these products or at least the plant-based products? And, and do you think that they will have a long-term impact? Yeah, so I'm a lifelong vegetarian, so I've never had meat. Um, and so for me, these, uh, this category of food is interesting as kind of a novelty um, rather than a replacement. Um, I know for, for people who, who grew up as, as meat eaters, it's probably the opposite view that they're looking at it as a replacement for, for meat, uh, for health and sustainability reasons. So that's kind of my personal take. And yeah, I enjoy, I've had um, a lot of the different companies, their uh, their plant-based meats. And last year in Berkeley uh, at the Good Food Conference, I got to try uh, a lot of the new products as well. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that uh, plant-based eggs would be such a big business because they go into all these baking uh, products. But that was an interesting category that I hadn't seen before. Great. And um, you, tr you tried the Just Egg? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Okay, cool. And so as a lifelong vegetarian, would you eat cell-cultured meat? Um, so I guess since it's not available yet, I haven't had to make that decision. But yeah, um, yeah, to, yeah perhaps not. Um, yeah, I feel that maybe that's still too close uh, to, to actual meat. Um, and in, in all honesty, it's more cultural for me rather than based on ethical principles, my vegetarianism. Um, so it's more just the feeling of it uh, would perhaps be too much like meat. I stumbled on this video of, it was it was with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook in like 2004, and he was being interviewed uh, by a news agency. And, and they were talking to him about what Facebook is. And he was saying it's a platform that allows you to see other people at your university and who their friends are and what their interests are. And back then it didn't seem like such a, a big deal. Um, and it also didn't seem like it could be such an important thing when it comes to privacy. I want to kind of take that example and use it towards AI. Like we know that new AI technologies are, are coming. Companies are using AI on a daily basis. Um, but what kind of major uh, events or technologies do you think will be the norm in the future uh, because of the work that we're doing to advance AI? Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, artificial intelligence has advanced quite a bit in the last uh, few years, um, especially with deep learning. Um, so for uh, vision tasks, natural language processing tasks, now we're seeing artificial intelligence technologies that are at human or superhuman uh, levels of performance for, for basic tasks like object recognition or um, image classification or um, even starting uh, to work on uh, language generation and uh, getting close to, to human levels of coherence. So yeah, the te technologies are getting really powerful. Um, in terms of where um, they'll actually be deployed in, in the world, uh, that's a good question. And in fact, um, one of the interesting things in, in the history of technology is that the producers of technology often don't know what will happen. It's often the users of technology that reinterpret uh, the technologies and understand where it will be uh, deployed. And that actually influences future design of the systems as well. Um, just as an example, to go back to, to an, another general purpose technology um, of previous centuries, 
when radio was first uh, invented, it was thought of as a replacement for wireline telegraphy. Um, it was even called wireless telegraphy. And it was thought of as a point-to-point -point communication medium. But uh, users of the technology realized that, in fact, broadcast is, is the, the killer app of, uh, of radio. Um, the fact that you can reach a lot of people simultaneously. And it was users who pushed it into that direction. And that's how we understand radio now. Um, and for people like Marconi, it was unimaginable that you would uh, use it uh, as a broadcast medium. So I think uh, it's hard to tell what the future will hold. Um, but I think users of these technologies will uh, will drive it uh, quite a bit further um, in ways that the producers of these technologies wouldn't have imagined. Interesting. Okay, and and that that is a fantastic example. Uh, you know, on this topic, I met with Martin Eberhardt. He's actually a, a U of I graduate that worked on products like the Rocket Book, and then he later was one of the original founders of Tesla. And we were talking about AI and we were talking about self-driving cars specifically. And he said something very interesting. He said, if when it comes to software, if the software on your router or your modem crashes, you're going to have a bad day, right? You're going to lose your internet. You're going to have a bad day. If the software in your vehicle that's driving you crashes, you know, people could die, right? And that, that's really depending on computers to drive a car it's kind of a totally different ballgame. And and I'm as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about how much computers are involved in aircraft and airplanes and things like that. What are your thoughts on self-driving cars specifically? Um, so I find autonomy um, very interesting. I think it's really powerful. Um, and a lot of people are pursuing um, autonomous driving for for general settings. Um, I think a nicer approach is one that my former roommate in, in grad school, Sirtaj Garman, and his company Optimus Ride are taking. They're trying to initially deploy um, autonomous vehicles within closed communities where they can get a very good mapping of, of all the roads and the culture of the place and just restricting their vehicles to, to those um, smaller communities. Um, I think that um, being in a more controlled environment initially is, is a very nice idea. Going forward, I think autonomy uh, will start to be deployed in, in a lot more settings. And it's not that um, creating reliability is foreign to us. There's uh, a long history of computers being quite reliable. Um, perhaps the most famous example is the Apollo program. Um, going to the moon 50 years ago. Um, those computers were, were very reliable. Um, uh, they didn't have uh, any failures or any failures at all. Um, and I guess we sent a man to the moon and returned him safely to Earth. So, um, and actually these days, um, for example, my colleague at Illinois, Shayan Mitra, he's been looking at using formal methods for verification of the safety of uh, autonomous vehicles. So again, kind of some very solid research that's suggestive that there's ways of uh, making sure things work as, as we intend. It is crazy to think that it was 50 years ago that we, we went to the moon and, and how computer technology has advanced. So that, that, is, that is quite crazy. I've been using the term AI. Is that the best term to refer to the industry? Um, yeah, I think that's the term that's uh, become a, uh, adopted in the last few years. Um, 
there's sub-branches of artificial intelligence, like machine learning, that uh, have their own um, history that also connect to other fields like statistics and, and signal processing. Um, and then there's more logic-based uh, symbolic uh, AI systems. Um, I think a lot of these techniques um, are now cast into this uh, common bucket. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a nice way to talk about it. You recently mentioned that over the last few years, AI research has increased and, and advanced tremendously. Why do you think that is? And, and I will first say, is it because of neural networks? Yeah, so um, yeah, I think the, the incredible growth um, of uh, these technologies has been driven largely by the deep learning revolution. Um, this idea that we can use neural networks, uh, very large uh, neural networks trained on very large data to accomplish tasks at superhuman levels. Um, and that has really been enabled by advances in, in both uh, data as well as computing hardware. So the ability to do these things at large scale has really been the driver. U of I, I think they're still running the Blue Waters program, is that right? Yeah, so um, a lot of supercomputing was developed at Illinois and is still, uh, Illinois is still a leader in, in uh, supercomputing. Have you worked with that department at all? So my colleague Wenmei, who in electrical and computer engineering at Illinois, um, was the original um, principal investigator for the Blue Waters program, and I collaborate with him quite closely. Uh, he's actually leading a center that I'm part of, and also is my acting department head. Um, so I've had a good chance to work with a lot of uh, computer engineering folks at Illinois and uh, learn about various settings where um, super uh, supercomputing can be used. For someone that's interested in getting into AI, um, either as a student or maybe somebody who's currently in a professional setting that wants to switch industries, what advice do you have for them? So I, I think um, this is an area that one can get into um, uh, fairly easily if one has the appropriate background. Um, so one can build up their computing background, um, computer science and um, computer engineering. One can build up their statistical knowledge um, as well as algorithms for optimization. And so um, all of these um, ideas will contribute to, to building AI systems. But then there's also the users. So uh, a different approach is to treat certain algorithmic ideas as black boxes and think about how they can be deployed into various industries like wastewater or flavor science or supply chain management. And that's a different way of thinking. And there, one should understand the capabilities of algorithms and the inputs and outputs and kind of the names of different problems, like what's the difference between classification and regression? What is it, broadly speaking, that reinforcement learning does? And so I think that's another way into it. And then one can collaborate with folks to define which problems in, in one's given industry are most amenable to AI. And then one can take off the shelf or um, kind of fine-tuned uh, algorithms uh, that already exist. Would you say that small teams and startups could make a big impact in the field? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's a lot of scope for, for startups to, to make an impact, especially in taking it to new applications, functionally new applications. You can learn more about Love on LinkedIn. Are there any last insights that you might have for our listeners today? Yeah, so uh, given that the focus of this uh, podcast is on, on food, let me also just mention that I think one of the great revolutions in food was the Colombian exchange um, in, after Columbus came to, to the New World. 
we kind of doubled the number of ingredients that uh, that we could use. But for example, the potato, um, when it went back to the old world, wasn't used so much. Um, and it was largely because people didn't know how to cook with it and it wasn't so flavorful. Um, and we're seeing some of that right now with these uh, plant-based meats as a, as a new product category. And so if we can think about the flavor and, and the usage a little bit more and define a kind of a new category of how to use it, I think that can be really powerful. And in particular, um, AI techniques might, uh, might help us discover new ways of, uh, of using these uh, new ingredients. Interesting. And it, it makes me think back to how the user could, in very many ways, shape the, the future of a, a type of technology. Yep, for sure. Exactly. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. Great. Thanks, Alex, for having me.